0: This podcast was produced on Monday, September 11th at 9.41 p.m. Eastern Standard Time.
1: To me, the Trump election was a real wake-up call. And I am certainly not willing to cede any ground to political arsonists on the right uh, when it comes to speaking for blue-collar people. Mm
0: Ontario MP and NDP leadership hopeful Charlie Angus on some of the things he change if he's chosen to head the party. Four candidates are vying to replace Thomas Mulcair as NDP leader. Angus is the veteran in the race. He's up against MPs Nikki Ashton and Guy Caron, and Ontario MPP Jagmeet Singh. Singh and Angus are the perceived frontrunners, and sparks flew between them Sunday in Vancouver as each tried to rally supporters in the contest's final weeks.
2: I would call for the immediate decriminalization of all personal possession
1: offenses when it comes to drugs, period. I don't know if it's decriminalization or some kind of program to work with the addicts. You're
2: not actually answering the question. The question is do you support the continued prosecution of people just because they have mental health issues? My question is Charlie. A lot of misinformation has been spread about my plan to lift seniors out of poverty.
1: I guess I still can't get over the fact that you would put a means test.
2: You don't understand the position whatsoever. I think you agree with seniors living in poverty, because if you don't
0: understand... The crowd booed on that one. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. This week, I sit down with Charlie Angus to talk about his platform, the state of the NDP, and what he thinks he brings to the race. This is part of our series on the NDP leadership contest as we gear up for our HuffPost debate on September 27th. You can watch that live on our Facebook page and we'll also, of course, record that for you in a special podcast. But here now is the interview with Charlie Angus recorded just before last week's Vancouver Debate.
1: here in the Wellington building in Ottawa, and uh, we have really nice light in this building. And uh, i got a walls full of some of the different stuff I've been involved in over the years. Books, campaigns, cultural issues, the children I've dealt with in First Nation communities. Yeah. And my guitar.
0: Charlie Angus, welcome.
1: That's great to be on, uh, on the podcast.
0: I wanted to start off by asking you why you decided to run. You've been an MP since 2004. You didn't run in 2012. Why throw your hat in the ring this time?
1: I think we're at a really particular moment in our nation's history, and certainly a very particular moment for the role of the new Democratic Party. Uh, I don't believe status quo is good enough with our party. And I think we really need to have a vision uh, to talk about why we exist, and where we're going. And to me, the fundamental issue of our time is that more and more people are tuned out of politics. They don't believe politicians speak for them. And I think more and more people feel they're being written off the political and economic map. And I want to be a leader of a party that's fiery, feisty, but also um, offering solutions to move us forward.
0: Do you feel like the party has sort of lost its way?
1: I I I think if we made one huge mistake in in 2015 was the belief that that it was our time. It's never your time. It's only your time if you make it your time. I think we were a little too careful. You know, we were we became very centralized in Ottawa, very sort of bureaucratic, and I think we lost touch with our grassroots. Uh, uh, and if there's a difference between a social democratic party and the other parties, is we really have to always be. Uh, very tuned into the grassroots, to the, to the ordinary members, uh, and we lost that.
0: You've talked about um, Donald Trump. You mentioned that you felt it was important that the left, the, the NDP, not let uh, people like Mr. Trump speak on behalf of blue collar workers. And I thought that was a very interesting point because when I go to NDP gatherings, I feel like I'm seeing more and more senior citizens and not that many, you know, typical looking blue-collar workers, has the party forgotten about them?
1: Well, I think the uh, the real issue uh, for the progressive movement is um, not being too cool and not being too smart for the blue-collar. Uh, and, and look at Look at Hillary's campaign. I mean, when when a progressive movement in the United States thinks they don't have to talk to people in Michigan, in Ohio, well, look what happened. Um, and I think the danger for the new Democratic Party is we, you know, we love our policy and we love the latest issues in that. But back home, people are struggling to get by. And I think that that's, to me, the Trump election was a real wake-up call. And I am certainly not willing to cede any ground to political arsonists on the right uh, when it comes to speaking for blue-collar people. But in speaking for the working class, the important thing is is how do we reach, how do we build that broader tent? How do we reach out to people who literally feel that Ottawa does, has nothing to do with them? And I think I'm the person who can bridge the gap between uh, the, the northern blue-collar, the industrial blue-collar, plus a lot of urban young people who are almost creating their own economy because they don't have the the, the possibility of permanent work.
0: Your opponents, um, specifically Jagmeet Singh, but I think Guy Caron too, to a certain extent, are suggesting that really like 2019 is possible. And if only the NDP could reach out to more people, more people would um, have the sense that a party really has their back and they would be a viable option for the next election from my listening to you right now, I feel like maybe what you're proposing is not necessarily a winning path to 2019, but basically a, like a steady growing of the party.
1: Well, I, I believe to win in 2019, we have to re-energize our grassroots and we have to be credible. Uh, we have to be speaking on issues that really matter to people. Um, we're not going to win in 2019 unless we do that. But I, I really believe that 2019 will be a, a question of who is the authentic voice for Canada, uh, and that's where New Democrats have to place ourselves. Um, Andrew Scheer will do what Andrew Scheer's doing. Uh, I think what Justin Trudeau's enormous success in 2015 uh, was that he managed to galvanize people's sense of hope and a vision of a progressive future, and I feel very energized by the fact that Canadians want that. The question that's going to come back to Mr. Trudeau is, so after that, we got a lot of, a lot of image, a, a lot of celebrity promotion, but on some key issues, you're not delivering. And so rather than be angry and shaking my fist at Mr. is to say, let's now talk about how we make that vision a reality. So I'm planning on winning in 2019, but I have to be realistic. To win in 2019, it's going to take more than slogans. It's going to take a lot of rebuilding at the grassroots, and we need to do that. Well, Jack Layton uh, called me to be part of a movement when we had 13 seats um, and we started to build uh, very carefully and we built it from the ground up. And that was the beginning of the orange wave. And I think that we have to look at going back to our roots. Certainly we are not going to give up the ground that we won in 2011 in Quebec. That to me will be the prime objective of the leader is to be back in Quebec because we have such enormous opportunity. But it's also the strategy that we brought forward in this whole campaign which was to build the teams, autonomous teams across the regions, asking people to sign up 10 members themselves so that we go back to that old school. You know, everything's new, everything's old is new again. And we have to think in terms, not just of digital which is great, not just of social media which is really important, but building that relationship, that kitchen table trust. Because that's what social democracy is rooted in. That's where I will be focused on. I was born in Timmins, Ontario, and I got my name from Charlie Angus, who died on the shop floor at the Hollinger Mine six months before I was born. Um, They were Scottish immigrant uh, miners. Uh, My granny, who was a mining immigrant widow, uh, took me under her wing and taught me politics from day one. Um, I grew up in a family that was um, uh, a lot of fun. Uh, they were, uh, my grand, both my grandparents' sides of the family loved music. Uh, we had Kaylee's. They- my mother's family were Cape Bretoners, so we had sing, sing, sing-alongs. That's what we did. Uh, we grew up on traditional music. Uh, my dad and mom quit school when they were 15, 16 and went to work because they were kids of minors. And university wasn't an option. And my mom spent her nights doing correspondence courses and my dad studied math books because they wanted a better future. And my dad was almost 40 when he got the chance to go to university and he became an economics professor. Uh, and that's, that was our ticket into the middle class. And so that's where I come from. Of all the stars that ever shone, <laughs> not one does twinkle <laughs> like your pale blue eyes. Like golden corn at harvest time, your hair. I got thousands of lyrics sailing in my boat, the wind gently blows. <laughs> what? I'm not done. <laughs> I'm out of here. Uh, my granny was very opinionated so it was very loud in the house and uh, we had a broken car in the front yard because my dad didn't really like to drive they took the ttc to work my parents and uh, and uh, i was 15 when i found the first clash album and that was my ticket out because um uh, the punk movement suddenly the world was Suddenly, there was color in a world of beige and black and white. And it made me think, you know, maybe it is possible to just do something completely different. So uh, I met Andrew. I-, I knew Andrew Cash. We were in the same neighborhood. We formed a band and we made a plan to quit school L'étranger. and go on the road. What? L'Etranger. L'Etranger, yeah. French name. Yeah. Albert Camus. <laughs> we were young intellectuals. And uh, so we went on the road. Um, so we uh, We toured. Uh, uh, played with you know the Dead Kennedys, Billy Idol, um, Violent Femmes. We did a lot of uh, youth organizing, The Rock Against Racism. When the neo-Nazi movement was starting then, we were doing all kinds of street organizing. Uh, I met my wife when I was 19. We moved in together. We've been together ever since. Um, and I quit the band to start a house of homeless people with her. And that was another real adventure and then uh, the daughters were born and we moved to Northern Ontario to cobalt just as all the mines were shutting down and the grocery store was shutting down and the French school was shutting down Um, and everyone was saying it was a dying mining town and we said well here we are. So,
0: Why did you move?
1: For an adventure to raise our kids in a different place and uh, we fell in love with cobalt. It is a wild different place and uh, so uh, I started out in Northern Ontario as a chimney sweep uh, I was a roofer. I'm terrified of heights. Uh, so I worked on roofs, we built barns, and then decided that I didn't want to do that. So we started a magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we ran the magazine for about 10 years. Uh, and I became a journalist. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you worked, worked for the local CBC?
1: I worked for CBC, yeah. I worked, uh, I worked for um, TV Ontario. I, was, I did television documentaries. And then I ran the blockade on the Adams Mine, and that was it. I was done. Uh, I was done on TV. I was done, and CBC fired me that day. Fair play. Uh, So I had no work, and then the Algonquin Nation hired me. So I went to work in Quebec as a negotiator, and I ran blockades in the Lavirondre Park and sat down and negotiated with uh, the PQ government. uh,
0: uh, You're like a professional activist.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I wasn't a professional, Jack. Kept asking me to run because uh, the Adams mine. That battle was was about ten years of really intense, intense fighting against the Harper or the Harris government, and I learned a lot of street lessons then. Um, what did you learn? I've learned. I learned how to investigate. I learned how to s- s- study the opposition really well. Um, we hired we hired a private eye to follow Mike Harris to a. To a meeting uh, in at a big Italian restaurant in North Toronto and photographed all the license plates to find out who was at that meeting with them, and then we released it to, to the media.
0: <laughs> Your parents were not active in party politics.
1: No, my dad did not want an election sign on his lawn at all. He was uh, did not want that. But I think my grandparents the Anguses were very militant left. Uh, so I think my dad was always worried. <laughs> but uh, no, we, uh, we, 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 don't dis- we didn't discuss politics at home. We had uh, certain rules. My dad didn't like us arguing politics or the church. Um, so we argued music and everything else.
0: So what did they think of you joining the NDP and running?
1: Um, well, when my dad was alive, he would get up every morning at 6 a.m., and read all the newspapers and send notes to me. Don't say this, watch this, the tax policy stuff's wrong, you know, this is what you, Jack's saying this, but you gotta really watch that. He was just so worried. (laughs) It was great.
0: Okay, hi, uh, my name's Catherine Ayers. I live in Vancouver and today I'm at the York Theatre on Commercial Drive to hear the debate and to especially hear Charlie Angus. Uh, I particularly like, particularly like Charlie because he's um, proven himself to be a real supporter of working-class uh, issues. Um, he's a real fighter, he's dogged, he's strong, and he, I think he would have the broadest appeal for Canadians of uh, various backgrounds. So are you decided then? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I am.
2: Adrian Peacock, and I live in Belcarra, just outside Port Moody. So are you decided? Um, No, I'm not decided yet. I'm leaning, but I'm not going to talk about it because I I want to hear them. That's why I'm here. Okay, if
0: you don't want to tell me who you're leaning towards, why are you leaning towards that person?
2: Well, I, I, I like the idea, I definitely want to see proportional representation. That, that to me is absolute bottom line because that's one of the problems with our politics, I would say. And so I'd like to see the MMP system and I would like to see a guaranteed annual income. So basically you like Guy Caron. You like who? I, I think he has a, a lot of uh, good points, yeah. He, well, he mentioned site C. <laughs> <laughs> as a bad idea. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, he's done his homework in some ways. But, you know, I, I'm here to see, to hear.
0: In the debate, you also talked about how um, you felt that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, had, um, should have, I should say, uh, taken up Mr. Couillard's offer, the Premier of Quebec, to... Um, begin constitutional discussions to ensure that Quebec could sign the constitution from 1982. Um, In your platform, uh, you also talk about rights and you talk about um, a right to have a roof over your head. And I wondered if that meant that if in the course of having this constitutional discussion where we're talking about Quebec, where we're no doubt talking about indigenous rights, that we might also be talking about social
1: rights. That's a good question. Certainly, I think in terms of uh, the question of Quebec and the Constitution, this is the unfinished business of Canada. Uh, We have to get this thing figured out at a certain point, and we may be at a point in our history of respect between Quebec and Canada to have that conversation. So I I was surprised that the Prime Minister said no, because um, I think that it's... these are sometimes complicated matters, but a nation needs to deal with complicated issues, and certainly rising questions in terms of Indigenous rights are being dealt with by the courts all the time. So do we keep allow pushing things to the Supreme Court, or do we sit down and say, how do we start to deal with these rights? In terms of the issue of social rights, the issue of housing, to me, is a, is a really good example of that. What we've seen over the last number of years... Uh, at the federal level, both from liberal and conservative governments, is a stepping away from a vision of, of a national responsibility to ensure that everyone has a, a fair chance in life. And you know, I remember when Mr. Martin walked away on the national housing program, it's like, don't worry, the private sector will step up. Well, the private sector didn't step up. Uh, we've seen massive speculation and we see more and more people unable to afford a house. So. For me, again, the, the question of New Democrats is that all pie in the skies are pragmatic. How do we actually make these big vision things happen? Well, this fall, the prime Minister's getting a $4 billion surplus handed to him by CMHC. Uh, that's an enormous gift. How many politicians get a $4 billion surplus handed to them a year into, two years into their mandate? Wow, he could do something with that. So what's he going to do with that $4 billion surplus from CMHC? Is he going to, you know, buy more rubber ducks? Um, are we going to spend it Well, the rubber on-
0: ducks, to be fair, were bought by Ontario, not the federal okay, government. Okay, okay.
1: Well, <laughs> Ontario bought the rubber ducks. But, you know, or are we going to say, yeah, we need a national housing strategy. And this $4 billion will help start that. When I look at this situation and when I dealt with people on the streets, the cost of the system is enormous. I remember one, you know, one man that we dealt with. I was at AA with him when he was announced he was three hours sober. Uh, in a one-year period, I was in every single detox in the city with him. I was at the emergency ward with him. I don't know how many times. The police picked him up a thousand times. And we got him into a really crappy rooming house and got him sober. Um, because there were still crappy rooming houses available. And then this waiting list at that time wasn't all that long. Um, And out of that, he got 25 years of sobriety. He lived a really decent life. He became a stamp collector. He used to send my kids gifts every year. And the cost to the medical system was almost zero.
0: So should housing be a right?
1: Yeah. Housing should be a fundamental human right in this country that everyone should be able to have a roof over their head. That should be non-negotiable in 2017. And the reason we have to make it a right is because the ability to have mixed-income housing has disappeared in so many areas. Um, in downtown neighborhoods where there once were a real mix, there's now often like the super-rich and the poor. And it's not just an urban issue. Uh, I deal with northern communities and northern Reserves 20 people in a mold-infested shack, and that's okay in Canada? I don't think so. And then I deal in rural areas where seniors can't afford to live in their big old farmhouses because they can't afford to heat them, but they can't make the transition because there's no seniors' buildings available. So uh, we've fallen down on this, and if we make those investments, we're, we're, I believe the overall savings will be uh, easily recoupable.
0: But just so I'm clear, you mean like a constitutionally protected right? Or you mean like a theoretical right?
1: Well, I, I don't think you can write housing into the Constitution because you'd have to write a lot of other stuff. But I say when we say it's a right, it's a goal. And I think we have to talk about it like that.
0: You're probably the House of Commons' most well-known activists on indigenous rights. A big part of your platform is devoted to indigenous issues. I really like your suggestion for an indigenous children's ombudsman. Can you talk to us about that?
1: When you look at uh, the testimony in the Human Rights Tribunal, um, and you look at cases like uh, Jolyn Winter and Chantel Fox, who died in Wapakika in January, Uh, The federal government will sound culpable in their deaths. They knew these children were at risk. They were warned, and they opted not to respond. Uh, That's not acceptable. Anywhere else, heads would have rolled. And the federal government's just another day at the office. What we need is uh, an independent uh, child advocate office that is mandated to, to be able to launch investigations and has order making powers because we're we've lost so many children in my region. We lose young people every day almost uh, and there's always there's always a reason that services weren't available. It's always well. we'll look at it. Nothing changes,
0: as you know, the Liberal government has recently committed to splitting the Indigenous Affairs Department um, so that you have a department that focuses on services and another department that would focus on nation to nation discussions and self-government. You're also suggesting that we move beyond the borders that have been there and basically created systemic discrimination. Where do you think you would succeed where the liberals have failed?
1: Well. We now have two ministers handling um, the crisis uh, in child services and indigenous affairs, uh, and yet they're taking the Human Rights Tribunal to federal court to quash the order to make them accountable. So I would say to the prime minister, if you want to uh, end systemic discrimination, you would comply with the Human Rights Tribunal. We don't need two ministers to carry on a fight at federal court. We need one minister to end it. We have to make that Happen. The problem that I found with the department, both Health Canada, uh, because Health Canada has escaped a lot of the attention for the systemic negligence and malpractice that's been that's uh, undergone against Indigenous children, is that it's a black hole um, of accountability. You can't get basic statistics on anything from edu- how education services are delivered on how funding is spent on children. Um, we've had the best minds, the Auditor General, the Parliamentary Budget Office, committee after committee, and nothing has really changed. Um, the system has to be dismantled. And how will we dismantle it? We First of all, we need a full, independent, forensic audit of how the department has money, how things are allocated. Nobody even knows how this massive operation works. And then we begin to say, okay, how could services be better delivered um, for the communities, by the communities? If we're going to talk about decolonization, we have to talk about dealing with the with the fundamental system of colonialization, which is Indian affairs. And it has to happen. And will there be mistakes along the way? Yeah. But, I mean, even Steve Bannon, if he uh, was put, coming up with the most diabolic plan on the earth to destroy uh uh, you know a a system of government he couldn't have come up with indian affairs so (laughs) it's failed it will continue to fail and there's no tinkering or changing the desks around that's going to fix that
0: you say in your plan that you would also respect the u.n declaration on the rights of indigenous people that you would respect the truth and reconciliation commission's recommendations That you would respect the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal's decisions. Uh, These are all things that the Liberals promised in the 2015 election. What makes you think that an NDP government led by Charlie Angus wouldn't be receiving the same advice from the bureaucrats in Ottawa and the same result wouldn't happen? Well,
1: I certainly wouldn't have Michael Wernick as my uh, head of... um, The clerk of the Privy Council? No way. Sorry, Michael, you'd be gone tomorrow. Michael Wernick was head of uh, Indigenous Affairs and... uh, during the 12 years they fought Cindy Blackstock. We need accountability on this. I saw the Prime Minister make that promise in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. People wept. And the first 12 promises for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission were to fix it for this young generation. I saw the Prime Minister promise that they would respect the Human Rights Tribunal. Now there's been four orders since then. Uh, That's not acceptable. So if he's getting advice to say, keep fighting Cindy Blackstock, well, it's up to him. The buck stops with him, and it it will change. I do not want to see any more children die on my watch or anyone else's watch. This is job one of Canada and Canada 150 is to say those promises will be kept. Uh, there's a lot of long-term issues that may take years and may take negotiations, and we'll go forward and we'll go backwards. That's okay. But the idea that it's okay to underfund services for children, that's got to end.
0: My name is Margot Sangster. I'm at the York Theatre for the NDP Leadership Convention. For me it's important that someone really knows the policies um, and the issues, the issues and appropriate policy responses to those issues, and um, has the depth and breadth of experience that is required for the leader of the party and also the future Prime Minister of Canada. It's not a small undertaking. And I do feel that someone needs to be ready for the challenges that are implicit in that role.
2: My name's Bob Bosson. Oh, here's—we're uh, moving. We'll have to talk as we move. I—I um, I guess my perspective is I don't think the NDP is going to win the next election, so it's a question of who's best to grow the movement, uh, and with it, the party, uh, in the meantime. And for me, that. It looks like uh, either Jagmeet, who seems to have a way of talking to people, although I don't know really what he stands for, so I'm a bit reluctant, or um, Guy Caron, who I like very much and may be able to grow it in Quebec. And I'm going to this debate to give everybody else one last chance.
0: I want to ask you about climate change. Your plan does not have any targets. Um has very few details, uh, especially compared to the other sections in your platform. Why is that?
1: Well, actually, I think uh, our plan is really target focused, which is that we're going to legislate the limits.
0: But you don't say what those limits would be?
1: Well, uh, I think that the limits for me are what we're going to get from scientific advice, but it has to be legislated. And you see, I guess what separates me from the other candidates is I come from mining country. And I know that uh, voluntary emissions, that's a crock. And I remember, uh, you know, nothing against Stefan Dion when he was the environment minister, but I remember I was first elected in 2005 and we were talking about Kyoto and the big vision for Kyoto. And I was like, I remember asking, I was just elected and uh, I was asking about, well, how do we make sure? And it was like, well, you know, it's gonna be voluntary because we all get along better. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. Industry doesn't do voluntary. Uh, You know, they didn't clean up INCO voluntarily. They ordered them. My backyard, there's a lake, it's a beautiful lake. I go there every day when I'm home. You can't swim in it. You won't be able to swim in it for another hundred years because it used to be perfectly legal to dump heavy metals and and toxins into the lakes because it was cheap uh, from the mines. You can't do that anymore. What I want to do is we legislate the hard limits, period. Uh, whatever those, you know, as a, as, a le- as a leadership candidate, I'm not a science guy. I don't know. Um, but we established a National Carbon Council, which is different than the other candidates. And this is what worked in uh, England and Scotland. There in England, they dropped their numbers significantly.
0: Where does Charlie Angus stand on pipelines and specifically um, this idea from some New Democrats, that really we should not be building any more pipelines. We should be trying our best to leave the oil in the ground and move towards a zero-emission economy.
1: Well, we do need, everyone knows we do need to move towards uh, the absolute low-carbon future, and we're not even in the game yet. Um, I think one of the things about a, legisl- a legislated carbon council and uh, and creating limits is that's going to pretty much lay down all the rules for how we move forward. Uh, On Kinder Morgan I think there's enormous problems with this because the process of revision review was problematic to begin with Um, and Stephen Harper's plan to get rid of the um, uh, the Navigable Waters Act I I think it's just caused all kinds of block blockages that are going to come up because if you can move pipelines across waterways without the shutoff valves on either side, who's going to buy onto that? So uh, these are seriously problematic uh, proposals. The prime minister's approved three pipelines last year. He's promoting Keystone XL and we've got Energy East. Uh, still on the table someplace. Why would we be needing to promote the fourth pipeline or the fifth pipeline when he's approved three? And we still don't see any investments in creating renewables.
0: But do you support Keystone? Would you?
1: No, I don't support Keystone.
0: And Energy East?
1: Absolutely not Energy East. But again, it's like he's approved three pipelines. We haven't made any steps to meet our international obligations.
0: But on the pipeline debate, especially in the NDP circles, you're not against pipelines, you're just against these pipelines. Is that fair?
1: Well, the question is, I think one of the problems is when we talk about energy, we, we only talk about the pipeline. Energy is, move, gas, oil is moving, oil is moving on train. I've had two or three major derailments in my region. Um, so the oil will continue to move, Heavy heavy crude is moving one way or the other. My concern is, is how do we actually start to move us beyond needing to move heavy crude and how do we do that without just simply uh, laying off 60,000 workers overnight because that, that's not going to get us to our goal any either.
0: During last weekend's debate, leadership rival Nikki Ashton asked Charlie Angus if he supported Kinder Morgan's expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. He gave her a less than clear answer. Charlie, I'm proud of the vision that our campaign has put forward on economic justice as well as environmental justice. We must respect indigenous rights, the environment, and look to protect and create good jobs. That's why I've come forward with a clear position against pipelines like Kinder Morgan, and for a job creation strategy that is tied to federal investments in a green transition. What is your position on Kinder Morgan?
1: Well, Nikki, I thank you for that question because I came into politics fighting one of the largest environmental mega projects in Canadian history. And the night that the Kinder Morgan decision came down, I spoke with Rach- Premier Notley and expressed my concerns because we have 98,000 jobs directly associated to the eco-fragile uh, ecosystem on the B.C. coast. So there are serious issues here but the other issue also is being able to work as national leader with our colleagues in alberta on economic diversification that's what i'm committed to
0: how will you win this
1: we uh, we have a really great path forward our ground game is very strong our ability to pull the vote among people who are really Engaged in this race, it's it's gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. And we tried to run a race that was positive, uh, that um, was big enough ten for anybody to come into uh, from any of the camps. And then uh, we'll you know see how it goes in second and third ballot. <music>
0: Well, that's our show this week. If you enjoyed this episode, don't be shy. Please leave us a positive review. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can reach me through Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj is my handle. A big thank you this week to our producer extraordinaire, Zian Lum, and our wonderful technical producer, Stephanie Warner. Our executive producer is Andre Lau. I'm Althea Raj. Have a great week.